Amen. Oh, it's great to be uh, starting this series called Reach With You, and that gives you a good flavor. We're going to have one of those videos for each of the weeks in the series. Um, and if you have a Bible, could you turn to Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9, if you've got a Bible. We're going to be in this series looking at how Jesus reached people with the gospel. That's basically what the series is about. And I'm hoping it's going to be something encouraging for us because... Well, as we'll see, I think sometimes evangelism or sharing the gospel can be something that can scare people. And I think the way that Jesus does it is going to be liberating for people, I trust, that, uh, today. And so we're going to be looking at how we do that, how Jesus does it, and how that can equip and help us. And my guess is that most of us already know, already are persuaded that sharing the gospel is a good thing for Christians to do. If you're a Christian, you probably know that anyway, because it's something that is so central to the ministry and mission of Jesus. It's something that Jesus tells his disciples all to do. It's something that the church then spend the whole of the book of Acts doing. And it's something that in many ways characterizes the whole Bible, because right the way back in the Old Testament at the beginning, you've got God saying he's going to bless all the nations through Abraham's family. So as in people sharing the gospel with people, is always something that's going to be a big part of the Bible. And also, it's something that's been a huge part of the story of the church, because the church began with 120 people, and there's now upwards of 2 billion of us, and the way that happened is by people sharing the gospel with other people, and telling people what God has done in Christ, and that's made a huge difference to the shape of the world, actually. So, it's a big part of Christianity, and that's probably obvious to those of us who are Christians, but my guess is it's also often obvious even to people who aren't Christians. And that's a slightly stranger thought, but often you find that people, you might not be a believer in Jesus at all today, but you might be the kind of person who says, I'm not sure if I believe this. In fact, I may know I don't believe it, but I can see that if it was true, it's the sort of thing people should tell each, pe- tell each other. I've just, I found a, it was a really interesting comment from, you may have seen this guy before, he's got quite a famous face. Um, his name's Pendulette, and he's a magician, you might have seen him on TV, like he does a lot of magician stuff, and he appears in Friends, and they, I don't know, he's, so he's a, a sort of relatively well-known atheist, and he's very convinced that atheism's true. It's like, don't believe there's a God, don't believe a word of it. He probably doesn't believe any of the words in any of the songs we've sung in this meeting. But he makes a very interesting comment about the fact that Christians, if, the gospel, if they believe the gospel, they should really tell other people what it is. And he makes this really interesting comment. He says, I don't respect... He, uh, basically, a Christian comes up and gives him a Bible after a show. And he speaks really warmly of this guy and says, I thought that was great. And, and people say, what do you mean? You're an atheist. And then he said this. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which means share their faith, of share what God has done for them. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now, that's a strong way of putting it, right? You have to hate somebody and so on. But I find it a very interesting comment from an atheist to say, this really, if it's true, you should share it. And I think he massively undersells the good news, you see, because he basically makes it about, is it hell or heaven, that sort of thing. And that's a, a small fraction of the good news of Christianity, right? The good news of Christianity is not just that everlasting life is available at some point in the future. It's that you can know God now. You can experience his love and power now. You can receive his Holy Spirit to transform and change you. You can know a new identity in him. You can have forgiveness from everything you've ever done wrong. You can be adopted into his family, be changed by him, and get raised to a new body and a new life forever afterwards. You think, this is huge news. And if it's true, it's the sort of thing you tell people if you love them. So 
probably, even people who aren't believers, and certainly people who are, already know that sharing the gospel of Jesus is a big part of the Christian life. The problem isn't that we don't know that. The problem is that even though we know it, we find it really difficult or scary or awkward or frustrating or guilt-inducing, probably. Many of us do. And that's why we're doing this series. So this, that's the, I'm not going to try and persuade you in this series that sharing the gospel is a good idea. I think most of us probably know it is. Instead, I'm going to try, hopefully, in a liberating and encouraging way. That's my goal this morning anyway. So just help us see, how did Jesus do it? In a way that can empower and equip rather than just add more kind of guilt and fear on everybody as well. So we're going to look in, in Sunday mornings and in the groups and in the devotional, which you've already seen. We're going to look at how Jesus shared the gospel. And so we're going to read from Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. So he's now set up the scene, if you like. You've got to, he, he, Jesus is compassionate for people, so he says, you guys have got to pray we're going to send people, and then he sends them with their marching orders. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is the Word of God. Many of us, and my guess is most of us, don't find evangelism very easy. There are some who who love it, right? But many of us will find it produces this toxic combination of fear and guilt. 
Uh, that may not be you, and if you may have, may have met someone like that, if that's not true for you. But some of us are not like that. Some of us love it. Some of us, my mother-in-law loves it, right? She's either telling people about Jesus, or she's praying about how she can, or she's plotting, and I think that's the right word, about how she can. She's sort of working out, where am I going to hide? How am I going to get? She loves it. That's what she would love to do. And there's a lot of people I know in this church who are like that. But my guess is that most of us are not. Most of us probably find it challenging or difficult. And to be honest with you, I'm like that. I don't find it easy. I find it challenging and difficult. And I'm hoping that in this message or this series, that actually helps. Because I think if you find something very easy and you then tell others to do it, it's kind of, you think, yeah, but do you really struggle with this like me? I really do. In fact, I think I face all the obstacles that most of us face to some degree, as well as another obstacle, which is that I work for a church. In fact, I kind of work for two churches, and so I spend almost my entire working, waking life with Christians, which makes it very difficult, because if you tell them the gospel, they go, yeah, I know. Um, so you've got to have got, in some ways, I'm hoping that the fact that this is not something that's easy for me might actually help, because the obstacles that I experience may well be the ones you experience too. That's my hope. And in my experience as an individual, as a pastor, there are at least three reasons I've found why people can struggle with evangelism to the point that they're even mentioning of the word evangelize or proselytize or share your faith or reach or whatever. You hear those words and it instantly produces a horrible cocktail of fear and guilt together. And the good news is that all three of these reasons why people feel that, Jesus confronts in a way in this passage. Jesus gives us a better way of thinking in this passage on all three of the reasons why we might struggle with evangelism. And the first of those, the first reason why I think we struggle is impatience. It sounds like an odd thing. You think, did Jesus really say anything about that? But I think what you'll see as we read what Jesus says, you'll think, actually, there's an expectation that he has that is different for the expectation we have, and that can effectively reflect an impatience in our lives as it comes to the response to the gospel. Because we want people to respond in minutes. We want a microwave evangelism. Put them in, bing, and they're, okay, great, people have now responded straight away, and I've got my Christian. And that's not at all the way that Jesus presents the Christian life and the way that we share the gospel, right? The challenge, some, we want it in minutes, it often takes years or decades The problem is you and I hear a good story, and there are good stories of people responding instantly, and then we think, that's what should happen. You know, maybe someone is really good at it, and they're just great, really great at winning people. And then you, you hear the story, and you think, that's a lovely story. Maybe that's what I should be doing, and then you try it, and it doesn't work. And then you think, oh, this is rubbish. I'm no good at this, and you don't do it. It's out of impatience. It's expecting instant results. The problem is, of course, sometimes it does happen very quickly. It happened very quickly. The very first time I went door-to-door evangelism, this is what happened, right? Door-to-door evangelism is where you go out in pairs and you go out, you know, as part of a mission week or something. And I was part of this in my early 20s. And we went out knocking on doors in a town in Sussex. And uh, me and another person, like in pairs in the, in the story we've just read, you go out as a, as, a, as a team and you go and you knock on doors. And the other person had taken the lead for the first five or so. And then I had a go. So you go up to the door, feel like a traveling salesman. I've just been promoted to the guy who gets to speak. And you go to the door and you knock, knock, knock. And uh, the door opens and this lady's there and she says, hello. And say, hello. And so we're inviting people. And you kind of give them something like this. You know, we're inviting people to something called the Alpha Course, which is a, like a meal where we get to discuss and hear a little talk about Christianity. And then we discuss what we think about it and ask questions we might have about Christianity. Is that something you might be interested in? And she says, oh, uh, 
interesting. Yeah, I don't think I would, but do you know, I think my son might. Miles! And then down comes this lad about my age, comes to the door, give him the, you know, explain the thing to him, and he goes, actually, yeah, I think I might be interested in that. He says he's going to come. That evening he comes. He comes to the Alpha Course. He comes to, all the way through the Alpha Course to the 10th week. He becomes a Christian. He gets baptized. He joins the church. And I visit the church years later as a visiting preacher, and he's still there worshiping Jesus. And I'm like going, this evangelism thing's so easy. That's all you have to do, guys. Come on, just knock on a door, right? Now, the problem with that story and things like that, which are wonderful, is that when you hear them, you think, well, that's not what happens to me. That must be because I'm rubbish, because I don't get instant results like that at all. Hopefully this will encourage you. At the same time that's happening, my friend David is on the same evangelism team as me. He's also knocking on doors in a pair in a different part of the town. And he goes to the door, and this is what happens. No, silence, right? But he knows the TV's on, so he knows somebody's in, right? <laughs> this is... Long pause. Eventually, man comes to the door, opens the door. David doesn't even get to start his little patter, right? This is what he says. I was sitting on my sofa, wondering whether it was going to be worth coming to the door to see who it was. And now that I can see you, I can tell it's not. Slam, (laughs) right? That's the end of the conversation. And so obviously, at the end of that day, we're both coming back. And I'm going, we had this amazing thing. He's like, that does not bless me because that's not what happened to me. And my experience actually is that Although, in many ways, most people are neither, but many people in Britain today are closer to the second of those stories than the first, in that they are not prepared to change their whole view of the world in the space of 60 seconds. And we, therefore, can struggle with impatience because that's what we want. But most people don't change their belief system in a few seconds or a few minutes. It may take many years. And it can be dangerous in some ways if they change too quickly, not always. Some of you may have had that. You just instant experience. But many of us don't. In many of us, it took years. And it can be a bit of a risk if you change too quickly because then you find a new idea a few years later and you drop Christianity and exchange it for that. We baptized somebody in the Catford site in this church last week whose Christian story effectively began 50 years ago with her father who was fleeing Vietnam in a boat and eventually got to Hong Kong where some missionaries gave him a Bible. And he said, I don't need a Bible. I'm a Buddhist. Uh, and that was the end of that little encounter, but it sowed a seed that in him gradually grew and grew and grew, so by the time it gets 50 years later, we're baptizing his daughter. That's more common, probably, than the person who immediately hears the news and straight away responds, and actually, that's true even in the Bible. So sometimes what happens if you read the Bible and you read these stories in Acts, Peter preached, 3,000 people responded. I could find that really condemning, right? I've never preached and seen 3,000 people become Christians. But that doesn't worry me now, because I realize, okay, so let's look at those 3,000 people that responded on the day of Pentecost. All of them are Jewish people, which means that they already believe the Old Testament is entirely true. They believe a Messiah is coming. They believe that there is one God who made the heavens and the earth, and they worship him. They live in Jerusalem, which means that they know that Jesus has just been crucified, and they probably know that he was a good man who cast out demons and healed the sick, and they know that there's a rumor that his tomb was empty and that he's risen from the dead, and they can see miracles kicking off in front of them. In other words, those people are not representative of most people in Lewisham or Bromley or Greenwich. And so I shouldn't worry if when I speak to people about the gospel, the same thing doesn't happen. Actually, God's already been at work in their lives for many years. And that's often what happens in Scripture and in life. So look at the image Jesus uses as he's introducing this subject, right? The harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I hope you heard the word three times. 
It's a harvest, right? The language Jesus uses is not the microwave, obviously, because I don't have those things. It's not instantaneous. It's the kind of thing that farmers know you do. You sow a seed and nothing happens. And you wander off and you do something else. And you come back a few weeks later and nothing's happened. And you go back and you do something else. And you come back and you pour a bit of water on it and nothing is visible. And then a few months later, you see a little bit of life, but it's still nowhere near what you need. And then eventually, after months and months of waiting, you finally have something that you can harvest and turn into wheat or flour. And that's the image. This isn't a one-off. Jesus uses this image all the time, right? A man went out to sow. He scattered seed everywhere. He's often using this language because he wants you and me to see that this is not an instantaneous switch of a button. This is something that will take a long time. And we need to develop patience in saying, okay, I'm going to sow that, right? Nothing happened. So, okay, oh, a little, no, not really. And then over time, what happens is God makes it grow. And the language that we tend to use, we live in a world of updating feeds rather than of sowing seeds. So we go, Andrew Wilson is now a Christian, and I've just posted it, and lots of people can see it. Great. That's not the way it worked in this story, in Jesus' image. The way sowing seed, seeing harvest, and the timescales, he assumes, are really interesting. So chapter 10 and verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. That's odd. It's very inefficient. Surely, if you've got the message of the kingdom, you should go around everybody. But he says, no, find one house, talk, spend some time, proper time with them. Right? That's what you do. It's interesting, isn't it? It's inefficient if what you're trying to do is just mouth off to everybody. If you're a salesperson trying to close lots of deals. But we're not salespeople closing a deal. We're friends and family members who are loving our neighbors for the long haul. So don't let the enemy scupper your evangelism through impatience. He'd love to. Just not not gonna let him. The second reason why you might struggle with evangelism is simply disappointment. Right? And disappointment is when you expect success and then you encounter what you think of as failure and you find it difficult to get over it. Right? I had this early on. I would put it still down. It's gonna sound silly and dramatic, but I would still put this down as one of the five or ten worst experiences of my life. Not because it was that bad. I didn't get hurt. but I, Well, I did get very hurt, but I didn't get physically beaten around or anything, but I just remember feeling so awful afterwards. I was in Cambridge. I was doing some evangelism on the streets. So you, I can't even remember what they were doing. Just guys do something to gather a crowd. And there was this young lad. It was dark at night. It was coldish, you know, probably this time of year. And there was a young lad of about my age sitting on a bench and he was definitely cooler than me. I mean, not that that's a high bar, but you could tell. Like, as soon as I saw him, you're like, oh, okay. And I went, I just wanted to go up and sit next to him to start talking about anything, really. So I went up and said, do you mind if I sit here? And he looked at me and was like, what? What? Why? Why? Oh, all right. And I made a couple of failed attempts to start a conversation. And eventually, he was so embarrassed by the fact that I was there. He was just like, what? Seriously, what is this? And he just walked off. And I have not really been looked at in that fashion. I mean, he looked at me as if I was mentally unwell. He looked at me as if there was just, I was just grotesquely awful in his sight, as if something he would clean off his shoe. And I just, it crushed me, actually, at the time. I felt so stupid. And so I was like, this is what I am to the world. This is how people think of me. I'm a Christian, and this is what it means. And it sounds like a silly story, but actually, that kind of thing at the age of 20 or any age can make you feel really disappointed and think, I'm not going to do that again, because that sort of thing, that's what happens when you try and share Jesus with people. They do that. And that disappointment can really hinder you and rob you of being able to share Jesus. And you may have had a story that's equivalent, something, nothing awful, no one tried to kill me, just made me feel really, really stupid. So disappointment is made up of two things. 
right? Disappointment is made up of the gap between your expectation of success and your assessment of what actually happened, right? The gap between those is called disappointment. If this one's higher than that, then you go, that was, that was a win. But if you're expecting that and this happens, that's what disappointment is, right? And the key thing to remember is that both your expectation of success and your assessment of what happened might be wrong. And they often are. Right? You might be wrong in your expectation of success. And on that particular day, by the way, I think I was. And this is something that Jesus hammers into his disciples in this passage. Okay? Don't overestimate how well you're going to do. And this is, of course, he's talking to the 12, which is pretty amazing. But listen to some of the things he says. Verse 14. If anyone won't receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave. Right? Some people are going to completely ignore you. They don't want to want to know. Now, I'm not saying at this point that what I should have done with that young man is just to go like that at him. And just as I was leaving, just, do you know what? I shake my dust off at you. Was like, that would not have helped him in his journey towards Jesus. And there are particular things about this period in Israel's history that made that appropriate advice then that wouldn't probably be the thing that we would do now. But the point is, he's immediately preparing them for failure, isn't he? People aren't gonna, people, a lot of people aren't going to like this. This is what you do when they reject you. Verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Right? What happens when sheep are surrounded by wolves? They get eaten, right? So Jesus is preparing them to be totally ignored and to be eaten. And this is the 12, right? Pretty successful missionaries in the end. But he says, no, you need to go out with an expectation that you're going to get ignored and you're going to get eaten. And then verse 17 to 18, it gets worse. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That word witness relates to our word martyr. In other words, you're going to have to testify. And yeah, sometimes you're going to get killed and you're certainly going to get tortured, right? So... That's the expectation that Jesus sets the 12, right? You're going to get eaten, you're going to get ignored, or you're going to get tortured or even killed. So, seen in that light, my encounter with this young man in Cambridge doesn't look so bad all of a sudden, right? Because nobody killed me. I, I lived to tell the tale. That's it. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, it was a triumph. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting how Jesus sets the expectations of the 12 disciples, pretty astonishing missionaries by anyone's reckoning, right? These guys according to early church fathers, took the gospel to Syria, Turkey, Greece, Rome, Persia, even India by some reports. Probably there's a number of people in this room who are named after one of them. In fact, I can see a number of people I know in this room who are named after one of these 12 guys. They are life-shaping, world-changing people. And Jesus is saying up front, a lot of people aren't going to listen to a word you say and they're going to try and kill you. So you've got to get your expectation of success right early on. Success might be that the person comes on an alpha course and gets baptized, or it might be that they hear you out before they kill you. And you've got to know which, okay, the expectation of success might be wrong. But I might also be wrong in my assessment of what actually happened. And I might be reading something as a failure when it was actually more successful than I realized. So the first time I saw this image, I was told, and this will date me, this is an anointed acetate. That's what the guy said. You know what acetates were? Those old, that invisibly thin, plastic, wobbly things that used to project on screens in places like this, right? So this is basically, it's called the Engel Scale, and Steve is going to develop it next week, so I won't spend long on it, but the, the idea is basically people go on a journey, and most people don't jump from one to ten in one go. They go a little bit at a time, and it may be that a conversation you've had which you think is a failure because they didn't get to ten actually took them from two to three. 
And that might have been a great success in your world. Okay, so I just take that off. I don't want to distract everybody with it. But you get the, the idea is there's a process and you might read something as having failed when actually it succeeded. So you, I take, for instance, those American missionaries who gave a Bible to Lisa's father 50 years ago in Hong Kong. And he said, I don't need a Bible. I'm a Buddhist. Do you think they left that encounter thinking they'd failed? Maybe. They're probably dead now. They probably never know, they probably never learned that he and then his daughter were going to become believers and then 50 years later, last week, we're going to get to baptize her. Right? Because often you can't see the whole picture. You don't know what's going on, so you think something's been a failure, even when it may have been a success, it's just you couldn't see it. Again, more personally to me, I've got a friend who, uh, we've been close friends for 20 years, right? We used to live together and I'm going to see him in a couple of weeks' time, like really close with him. I love him and love his family. Um, he's maybe the brightest guy I know, right? He would run rings around me in debate. He's, I, I haven't been able to be a committed atheist, really. I haven't been able to persuade him that Christianity is true. And for years, I thought I'd failed. I did. I was like, this, is not, this has been a failure because he doesn't yet believe. And I've come to see over, over years of thinking through these things, this is not a failure at all. I have shared Jesus with him multiple times. He has read a book I've written from beginning to end, giving all the best reasons why I think Christianity is true, and he has still decided to reject it. He has seen in my life and in the life of my family, hopefully, a working out of the truth of what I say. He's seen that my life is consistent with what I'm telling him, even though it's not perfect. And even after all of that, he's decided that I don't think I believe that. And I don't know why, and I don't know whether he will respond, but I know that that's really on him and on the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, and it's not my responsibility to change him. And I now regard that as a huge success story when 15 years ago I would have regarded it as a failure story. I want many more experiences like that, not less. And you see that for you and I, we need to not only check, have I got my expectation of success right? I also need to check, am I right in what I think has actually happened here? Don't let the enemy scupper your evangelism through disappointment. And then the third reason why you may struggle with the very thought of evangelism, and I'm talking to myself here as much as anybody, is self-reliance. Self-reliance, is which, is, which is where you basically think that the primary actor in evangelism is you rather than God. Right? You, and that's where you, effectively, that's what you're relying on to make it work. Right? If you think the primary actor in evangelism is you, it's exhausting. It's so tiring. Right? It can make you feel like you're in telesales, continually badgering people to try and get them to buy something they don't want. You ever felt like that, sharing the gospel? I want to tell you this. I need to see go. I just don't want it. And you keep on at me until eventually I get bored enough to take a flyer or something. You think, no, that, if that's what evangelism is, I will find it very, very draining. I, I met a guy. And I don't know if this is true of him. I don't want to judge him because he may have been fine and just having an off day. But I... He struck me as a guy like this who wasn't very aware of the grace of God in evangelism. And he collared me on the tube. I was on an escalator in the tube. And he comes up to me and he's fairly sort of, you know, a slightly aggressive posture. He came up and said, have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yeah, I have actually. And that wasn't the answer he wanted at all. He didn't know what to do with it. It was like, oh, and, and then, but then he kept on at me. It was like, are you telling everybody? Are you sharing it? Are you making sure everybody knows? And I was like, man, it must be exhausting to be you. Because you seem to be doing this without an awareness of the grace of God going before you to work in the lives of the people you're talking to. It looks to me like you, and I don't know, maybe he did, as I say, but it looked to me like a man who wasn't living in the 
restfulness of the grace of God that God was actually already at work in lots of people around him and his responsibility was to see what God was doing and partner with him. It looked like he thought it was his responsibility to drag people over the line kicking and screaming and I thought, yeah, that's going to be tiring. If you, it will exhaust you if you think that you are the one who has the initiative and the tactics and the ideas and the words and the wisdom and the grit and the compassion and that's all on you. You are going to get drained very quickly sharing the gospel. But that's not how Jesus thinks about it in this passage at all. For Jesus, the initiative comes from him and not from the disciples. In fact, that's really clear because the disciples haven't even mentioned evangelism when Jesus starts this. Right? The initiative comes from Jesus. In chapter 9, verse 36, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, the disciples aren't saying, Jesus, let's go out and share the gospel. Can you help? The disciples don't even think about it. Jesus is saying, I have compassion, and as a result, I'm going to commission you to go and reach them. The initiative comes from him. The authority comes from him as well. Chapter 10 and verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. See, you need the authority and power of God to preach the kingdom to people. It's no good going in your, with your own ideas and your own strength and you without the power of God because... To make that point, by the way, verse 8, Jesus sends them out to preach the kingdom, and you might think, oh, I can do that. And then Jesus says, yeah, and raise the dead. And he's like, okay, some of us might go, I can know how to preach. Oh, gosh, no, no, I'm not very good at dead raising. I haven't had much success at that recently. The point being, of course, you need the power of God to get anywhere with any of them. So you've got to go with the authority of Jesus or not at all. And that's something you can only do in the power of God. So the initiative comes from Jesus. The authority comes from Jesus. The missionaries themselves come from Jesus. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. He doesn't say, the harvest is plentiful, therefore go. He says, the harvest is plentiful, therefore pray that, you, that some would go, because God needs to send them. And actually, even the very words you say when you're sharing the gospel come from God. Don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Do you see, like, God is the primary agent in evangelism here. It's his initiative, it's his authority, it's his missionaries, it's his words, and that's so liberating. And we're called to notice what he's doing and then get in on it, rather than try and force something that isn't there. I just find that so helpful. A friend of mine points this out with respect to Jesus himself, like, Jesus he used the example of Jesus in Jericho, in, in Luke, when Zacchaeus, do you know little Zacchaeus who climbs the tree? And the idea is Jesus walks in, and he's looking around at all of these crowds, and he, he's, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's my, that's my rule, of, rule of life. I do what I see the Father doing. And Jesus looks around, and he sees a little guy up a tree. And he thinks, hang on a second, that little guy's up a tree, but the Bible says that no one searches for God unless God's at work in their lives, so he must be my father must be at work in this little man up a tree. I'll come to your house for dinner. Do you see, he's, it's like looking and seeing what is God doing and how can I get with that rather than saying this is all on me. God must be working, so please don't let the enemy scupper your evangelism through self-reliance. And obviously what that means we have to do, really, at the beginning, and we're going to look at a load of other things we can do in the series, but at the beginning we have to remember to pray. We just have to start there. That's where Jesus starts in this passage, of course. But for all the ways that we can reach people with the gospel, we've got to start. Our first responsibility is to pray. Father, I know you are at work 
in this world around me. I know that you are touching lives of people around me all the time. Would you show me what you are doing? Would you show me where you are at work, what you would like me to do to contribute to that, how I can be part of it? Jesus, would you give me your compassion for the people around me? They are like sheep without a shepherd. Help me love them like you do. Holy Spirit, I'm going to go into places today and I'm going to have moments where I'm not quite sure what to say or how to communicate. Would you give me the words to say? Would you lead me? May I keep in step with you, Holy Spirit, so I can see where you want me to go and what to say when I get there. You see, begin to pray. I, I, I recommend doing that daily, like just quickly even, but daily. And Lord, today, I'm going to be led into all sorts of different situations. I pray, Father, Jesus, Spirit, would you help me you help me to reach, as we just saw in that prayer from Nicole at the start. And that is, of course, the first thing that Jesus tells people, the disciples to do in this text, is to pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. In fact, therefore, pray earnestly, right? Notice, of course, the prayer there is to send workers, which immediately, it turns out, are actually them. As in, Jesus says, pray earnestly for workers. And they go, yes, Lord, we pray that you would send out workers. And then Jesus goes, it's you. Now go. So, of course, you know that the same will be true for us, right? Pray earnestly and God is going to send you. But there's a difference between just going and praying and then going in the strength that God has given and the commission he's given. So pray that he would send out workers. Pray for particular individuals by name. Space to do that in here. Just writing people down and saying, these individuals, Lord, I ask for them this, over these next few weeks as we're in this series. Lord, would you give me an opportunity? Give me breakthrough. Give, us, give me capacity to speak. Give me wisdom. We pray for specific opportunities to reach people. I've used this acronym in my prayer life a lot over the last few months. I just, I'm, just, I'm walking the dog. Just like, Lord, help me remember people in, and remember these guys in prayer. To eat with people who don't know you. To ask good questions. To chat to people. To help people. Help me to reach. Pray that you would be in step with the Spirit. Characterized by Jesus' compassion. And aware of what the Father is doing and the people around you. And then, having prayed, we go. And we set aside our impatience and our disappointments, and our self-reliance, and we go with our spiritual eyes open, trusting that God will give us the words to say as we see what the Father is doing. The odds are that as you go through these next few weeks in this series, probably plenty of different things will come up to do, plenty of opportunities will come up to do one of these things. Yeah, I've got had opportunity this week to eat with someone, or to ask them a question, or to invite them to something, or to challenge them on something, or to talk to them, or just to help them. I've had those opportunities, but we do those things in the reality of grace, knowing that God is the one who takes the initiative, that God is the one who saves, and that we approach in prayer the one who wants nobody to perish, but all to come to knowledge of the truth and be, fun- and be saved. Let's pray. In fact, can we, can we stand? I think David's going to come out and uh, just lead us in a, in a song which just really nails this truth. It's so good for us to remember who's actually saving. But let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work. Lord, I, I thank you I'm not serving a dead God here. I'm not trying to win people to a God who doesn't exist or who isn't at work in the world. And I don't want to share the gospel with people as if I was. I thank you for the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in the world. I thank you for the compassion of Jesus. I thank you for the love of the Father for everybody. And I pray that as we go as a community, like hundreds and hundreds of us in this church, over this series, you would release us to go in the grace of God, to go in prayer, to go mindful of the fact that you are at work, Lord, and to pick up on your cues, to see where you are leading us, to see what you're up to in the world, and to partner with you, knowing that you are the one who saves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen.